Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of October 18th. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin, joined again today by Josh Blank, Research Director for the Texas Politics Project. How are you today, Josh? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? Well, I'm good, as uh, you you know, but our listeners don't. I'm, uh, for the first time we've done been since we started doing this podcast, at least, actually, that's not true. For the first time since the pandemic started, I'm actually back in the studio at UT. Nice to see our very essential crew in person. Um, so that's one thing that's happening this week. Another thing that's happening this week, <laughs> directly to the point, is that the Texas legislature adjourned sine die this week. Um I think technically Monday morning, and despite the anxieties of staff, lobby, legislators, me, you, me, <laughs> you know, Every- any, uh, mostly everybody paying attention, I think, with maybe one exception, uh, it, it does seem that the third special session was the last one, at least for now, and not for all time, but certainly, you know, for the 87th session. Now, there are some rumblings out there that were, you know, I think maybe magnified by a Patrick Svitek story in the Texas Tribune yesterday that the governor might call another one a little bit later down the road, maybe, you know, between now and the primary. And maybe we can circle back to that. I'm, you know, color me skeptical, but, um, you know, we'll see. It's been a very long session, I think, for anybody that either follows this, but, you know, certainly to be fair, and not that, you know, in the large scale of things, they're the most important people in the universe but certainly for people in the process you know this has been quite a travail and 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 quite unusual in terms of the link that went on and you know the back-to-back nature of this It's, it's been a while I mean it's not unprecedented as I think we we discussed earlier on the podcast at some point but it's been a thing for people in the process and and given the output of the legislature and the dynamics at work um honestly the democratic quorum break seems like it happened years ago yeah that was like five years ago right (laughs) (laughs) and you know it it was not it was june so but but uh, but that underlined the point being a a lot has gone on so you know i i thought that today would be a good time um after watching this all unfold through the summer and into the fall and and it being a recurrent theme here you know that it would be you know a reasonable thing to step back and kind of Look at the session overall, what it what it wrought, and I think we've talked a bit, quite a bit, really, about the policy stuff. But we want to now, now that there's a, a marker on it all, you know, what what came out of this session, how what it tells us about the political system, you know, what kind of politics were on display, you know, what it tells us about the, you know, not even just the political system, you know, thought of institutionally, but the kind of political universe in the state, you know, I- including. You know, some assessment of, you know, how, how we've understood this and I think whether, you know, the, the logic that we've seen there holds up and, and, and how we expect it to play. So, you know, let's start a little bit by just talking about 
you know, what they did. And I think, obviously, the thing we've talked about the most has been, you know, the the consistently very conservative to reactionary, frankly, content of mm-hmm. of the legislation. And I, I think that's a fair place to start. And I think I think it's a fair characterization. Yeah. I mean, I certainly agree with that. I mean, if you kind of go down the list, right, you're talking about, you know, the SBA, the abortion limitations, you're talking about the unlicensed care of handguns, you know, all of the new election and voting laws, you know, multiple attempts and, and at the last minute success on a bill targeting transgender you know, student athletes. Um, and I'm, you know, oh, Texas funding of the border wall. I, I mean, I'm probably forget. oh, critical race theory. I'm just, you know, you kind of say, right. oh, right in that. And oh, right in that. Yeah. Every, every time I make this list, a list of this for a talk or whatever, I realize I have, I read some, uh, I hit the list and then go, oh yeah. And then there's also. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, so, so when you look at this, I mean, what really sticks out to you i mean is it i mean it, i you know i mean i found myself as i talk about this realizing that i've been thinking about it a lot kind of in toto you know and what the mm-hmm. big picture and how it all puts together you know I, how it all fits together and, and the impression it creates but i think when you talk to individuals a lot of people out there want to talk about you know things in particular mm-hmm. right and and either because they're personally find it most, I think, offensive or threatening or disturbing or whatever your negative reaction is. Sure. You know, in some cases, although this is probably about sorting to some degree, you know, there are people that are, you know, that supported this agenda that have their own kind of pet achievements. But I'm wondering just kind of a gut level thing for you. Like, you know, when you look back and you think about this, you know, what really sticks out to you in the list of right wing kind of Right, you're thinking, you're thinking the particulars because I'm I'm like you. I immediately go to like right. the meta kind of what does this all mean to me kind of, you know kind of kind of thing. Yeah, but, but if I was gonna you know if I was gonna pick out some of the particulars, you know I think there's some you know I, I guess the lens through which I look through it is is this, which is you know I think okay we're talking about a lot of right wing legislation. The question is, or what among this legislation do I think Democrats are going to want to highlight come November is one kind of way to think about it. You know, and also what kind of legislation do Republicans want to highlight or maybe not highlight come November is kind of where I'm sort of would probably think about it. And I guess, you know, the things that I guess kind of stick out to me in some cases, I would say maybe, you know, you know, attempting to say the unlicensed carry of handguns and maybe the abortion restrictions, although, you know, I think the unlicensed, the former is probably a little bit more remarkable than the latter, only in that, you know, knowing what we know about public opinion. We're, we're a state just like pretty much every other state in the country where almost 90% of people would support universal background checks. And this seems to be, you know, squarely in the opposite direction of that. And I think that's kind of, you know, problematic. And I also think, you know, if, if Beto O'Rourke runs for governor and, you know, one of the big knocks against him is going to be the comment about him coming and taking, you know, AK-47s. I actually think this is probably, you know, the best opportunity for him to, to take a conversation like that head on because of this policy. I think it allows him to say, yeah, okay, fine, but you know, let's have a conversation about it. I'm not sure that, you know, anybody's going to necessarily want to, you know, I'm not sure whether either party is going to want to talk about abortion as much as, as activists and some might want to, but I'm not sure that that might be something that really carries through. In fact, I think, you know, it's a good chance that is an issue that kind of continues to carry through the election. And then I guess the other one is something that they sort of did more quietly that wasn't even right wing in some ways, but it's just sitting out there, which is, you know, what happens if we have another winter storm and we have issues? You know, I think there's yeah. that, that kind of, 
functional government stuff. And I mean, that sort of goes to the meta in some ways. It edges into it a little bit, but, you know, for me at least. But I think those are the things that really stick out to me, I suppose. The other issues are just, you know, more difficult, more niche and nuanced. And, and you know, I think in general are kind of just a little bit less likely to activate large shares of voters or be, you know, kind of continue to carry a lot of weight to my mind. Yeah. I mean, I think just, you know, if, if I stick to, you know, what we put in the large bucket of ideologically driven measures, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and I'll, you know, I'll get to the, the power outage thing in a minute, but I, you know, I, I think the, you know, the manner of, you know, the, the matter of the abortion law is, is the biggest X factor here within this bucket of things. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I kind of agree with you or with a kind of half twist maybe on the, on the handgun thing that everybody flags that the issue of guns could be Beta O'Rourke's, you know, from, from the moment he uttered right. the, 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 the quote about taking people's, you know, AK-47's hell yeah or whatever it was. Um, <laughs> yeah, some, some combination. Some, yeah, some, you know, mild cursing. I, I, I think that's already pretty baked in. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't think, you know, I mean, other than as an attack line and as a mobilization point for, you know, for Republicans, at least kind of in the abstract, I don't see that as being too unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Right now, I think, the you know, the, the path of SB8 and what happens in the courts, what the response is, you know, I, you know, I mean, N of two, but in the, the couple of talks that I've given in the last, you know, couple of weeks with, you know, not random samples of people to be sure but um you know the abortion law is the thing that seems to come up and to come up with the most intensity yeah you know it's coming up very consistency it's the question that i think you know somewhere in the range of informed observers to borderline participants have Mm -hmm. you know without it being all you know totally insiders um and i just you know i you know I, i think there's a lot of unknowns and i think you know you know, when you said, you know, neither party is going to want to talk about it, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I think depending on how the politics play out, you know, rightly or wrongly, Democrats may decide that they want to talk about it more well, I think, this time I think around. You that's know. probably the fair way to put it, which is that, you know, I'd say ultimately I don't think that Republicans, once they get past the primaries, are going to want to talk about it too much. Right. But I think Democrats, you know, it's going to be a decision. Right. how much they want to emphasize that issue. I mean, I think, you know, you think back and look, times have changed, but I mean, right. you know, I think Democrats still feel burned by Wendy Davis and the abortion filibuster launch right. pad to a gubernatorial race. And I mean, Republicans are more than happy despite all the, all, I mean, despite the multiple dimensions of change that have taken place in society between then and now, you know, I still see the abortion Barbie reference come up, which is, you know, problematic, Right. multiple levels. But I mean, you know, I think that speaks to why Republicans might not want to talk about it as much and why Democrats still feel a little, you know, probably reticent to make that too central. But we'll see. I mean, as well, it, the court, well, and I, yeah, and I, the courts decide and all kinds of things. Well, and I sure. guess that's where the X factor is, is that I think there's going to be some Democratic resonance based on, you know, ow, hot, <laughs> you mm. know, historical learning. But one of the things that has been, you know, tricky in the last few sites, it's always tricky to some extent is, you know, being able to figure out the, the extent to which the context has changed. Yeah. And and whether, you know, and clearly the context has changed here, but is it, has it changed enough to change the calculations that underlie that reflexive desire to talk about it some, but not too much? And I, you know, and I don't know, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I mean, you know, we've talked about this and you, you know, dug in those numbers. And I think the polling gives you some indication, but it doesn't, 
it's not definitive given where we are with this, you know, because of the the kind of unprecedented nature of the of the bill in a couple of different ways. And, you know, while things were getting more polarized in 2014, they're still more polarized and still more sorted now yeah, than they true. were, you know, in 2014. In the, you know, and really we're talking, you know, late 2013, early 2014. The, dy- the political mm-hmm. dynamic at that point was, you know, not a completely <laughs> different universe, but it was different. It was definitely different. <laughs> you know, we're, a, you know, for the Marvel fans out there, you know, not quite a different, completely different timeline in the multiverse, but getting close. Um, so I think the other thing that, that really sticks out to me, you know, because it doesn't stick, it hasn't stuck out much otherwise, other than the initial response, you know, is the politics of, of funding the border wall. On one hand, as we've said a million times here in print to reporters, friends, enemies, whoever, in some ways a no-brainer, given all that we've talked, and we talk about this on the podcast Mm -hmm. all the time, given the science of immigration and border security, the direction of of Republican public opinion, the attitudes among particularly ideologically intense conservatives, and so on. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you know, as we mentioned at the time, you know, the the fact of the monetary commitment here yeah. and the way that there just seem to be no real speed bumps on this on the Republican side, you know, is, is really telling. And I am curious to see, and this is probably more of a medium to long-term consideration. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that we probably have undersold a little bit as we've discussed this in terms of public opinion up to this point is also the the you know, the government economics of this. Mm-hmm. There is so much money flowing through the legislature right now. And yeah. certainly while that federal money was not given to Texas to build a border wall, you know, the... the, the Wasn't it given know, to Texas so we could send checks to homeowners? Right. You know, or the, something. I don't know. Which, anyway. Well, which is a good compare, which is a, you know, <laughs> sort of anticipates the point, which is, but there's been a lot of flexibility in that money. And, and, you know, that's what's great about money is it is fungible. And no matter how much they wrote, into some of the, the the strings on this money that you know you couldn't substitute this out it's clearly you know you couldn't use this money and you know to replace general revenue or etc you know all of this money has clearly led to a very different attitude towards spending as we saw in this last session and the discussion of you know how to allocate the federal fund and the fact that they're sitting on some of those funds to talk about tax relief in the in the near future, and I think that that is you know bearing on how, you know I, I think the plans that they have for funding the property tax relief, such as it is this time into the future, you know. So so I think that really you know so I mean in terms of like just tying off this part of it a little bit, that is kind of you know when I look at the list of all this deeply conservative stuff, you know the the border wall piece really is pretty interesting. And in the way that, you know, that has become just kind of normalized, it's like, yeah, we're going to allocate $2 billion in the budget for border security, including building a wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I mean, the two points are related, right? I mean, everything's related. I mean, if we're just going <laughs> to, everything's endogenous, as we like to say. But I mean, but I mean, I think those two points are actually really directly related. I was thinking about this a little bit this morning. You know, the other conversation we've been having a lot is a sort of how far is too far, and a lot of that is in relation to you know this just this long list of extremely conservative policy. And one of the questions that I think you know kind of 
you know, I, I don't know even know. I've heard it a couple times, but it's sort of half-hearted. I think people aren't there yet. Is sort of like, okay, so assume Abbott wins the primary, right? And then the question becomes, you know, what does the pivot look like in the general election? And I was thinking about it this morning a little bit, kind of in preparation for this podcast. Like, well, the pivot in the general election is not to the middle; it's to immigration and border security and property taxes. Yeah, it's a it, yeah. I mean, and I think we I think we even talked about this a couple of weeks ago a little bit, or began to kind of scratch at it some. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I that's the that's the one area in some ways where where I would think you know there you know just to take a step back. I mean, just to like just a little little more around yeah. this is that you know. I mean, I think the one thing, and we'll probably talk about redistricting at some point here, yeah. but the one thing that I would say is sort of at a meta level surprising about the session is the volume. It's all the stuff that we've seen. It's the fact that it was abortion and, you know, stuff about race and, you know, immigration and, yeah. you know, voting. And I They mean, left no stone unturned. They left no really. stone unturned. And, you know, and like, you know, sort of the, you know, a, a lesson that I had learned from the previous five sessions that I had watched with various degrees of <laughs> very close precision uh, was this idea that like, you know, well, generally speaking, they're not going to take on all the issues, all the, right. the divisive issues at once. Right. And, and, and generally what that looked like was, was generally just be straight up. It was the house. The house would say would, would not would elect speakers who basically would only allow so much to come to the floor because the speakers would know that this is extremely divisive members in competitive districts would be forced to vote right. for the, you know, especially Republicans, these, these bills to stay to basically win their primaries, but would then be endangered in general elections, especially in competitive districts. And so you would you would have one or two things, but not all of them. And so one thing is sort of just the volume of all of this. And to me, I mean, that's sort of directly tied to redistricting, right? In a lot of ways, which is to say, yeah. I mean, you're basically moving into a situation where you have less fewer members to protect than needed to be protected last time, but now they're being moved into significantly safer Republican districts. And so basically, you know, the yeah you know it boiled over in some ways right yeah well i mean i i think you know i, mean, I want to go back to something you started that i was going to jump in on before you went on the, in that direction but yeah, sure. I, you know we've been thinking about i think the conventional way that we think about you know a pivot after a primary you know in, in the period from the primary to the general election is often you know there's a you know we we think about it in issue space and you know right. ideological space and you know that's there but you know the trick this time, in part because of the huge, you know, cluster of things that Republicans or and for that matter, Democrat, that Republicans can choose to run on and Democrats can choose to, to criticize, is going to be a, a struggle of what are the top three things on the agenda that you want to take up campaign space and mm -hmm. and discussion, right? right. And there's going to be. I think there's always a degree to which that's there, but I think that's going to be very, there's going to be a real sharp distinction here mm -hmm. in which Republicans are very much going to be wanting to talk about a few things. I think that, you know, the things that you were talking about, property tax, obviously immigration and border security, and then the national stuff, right? You know, well, I think failure of the, the Biden administration, socialism, and how, te you know, and then positioning Texas in contrast to that. So, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things that comes out of a crowded session like this is the ability to do that. So, so you mentioned redistricting. Let's move on then to thinking about, you know, as we think about what happened in the session, I think, you know, it's ironic that we talked about all the other stuff first. Um, and I think that's sensible. But obviously, you know, from going back, you know, as, you know, as, as far as the 2018 election and thinking about and the election season in 2020, this was always going to be the redistricting session. Mm -hmm. 
And, yeah. you know, obviously <laughs> it loomed large. And, but I mean, I think, you know, I think in, in now with a, a pause, at least, if not an end to this session, you know, I think it's fair to, to you know, to point out that, you know, the, the Republicans were very successful, however much the combination of the census and the Democrats' quorum break made them wait in making adjustments to the electoral environment writ large to their advantage between the changes to the election laws and the way that that was driven, you know, largely, you know, with just a couple, you know, with a few deflections by what Republicans wanted. They largely got what they wanted and then some. And then a redistricting process in which they were able to, by and large, uh, dominate the process and, you know, within the constraints of demographic change and, you know, without the restraints of the degree of federal supervision that they've had to, to, you know, maneuver around in the past, really did succeed this session in resetting as much as, you know, was within their power, their electoral advantage going into the next decade. Yeah, that's right. And as I said, I mean, it's hard not, I mean, I think, you know, it's hard not to think kind of watching the session serve as an intuitive thing before redistricting happened, that this was influencing some of the policy decisions and political calculus, you know, that they were making all along. I think what's interesting about it in some ways is that, you know, the one district that doesn't get changed is the state of Texas. Right. And so it raises the question, you know, in some ways to the extent that, you know, Abbott on the other side of this was pushing so much of this, you know, legislation. I mean, one of the things that kind of sticks out to me is what does that say about his view of the electorate going ahead? We know that for a house, you know, if you're a house Republican and you were sitting in a district that used to be plus 16 Republican, and then it was plus eight, and then it was plus three, you know, yeah, maybe in the 2019 session, you say, you know, let's, let's just take a, let's, let's do some serious stuff. But then obviously you get to 2021 and the idea is, well, we're going to come back. And now all of a sudden you're back in a plus 16, plus 18, plus 20 Republican district. It really changes the approach. But Abbott hasn't changed and the state's still competitive. And so the thing that right. me something that you were saying before, which is, you know, one thing that's really kind of come through in this session that I think is sort of, you know, a, a, a bit of a change. I mean, I think, you know, to the extent that like I think over the past 10 years, we might say, well, you know, te- the Texas legislature is a little different. You know, the way that they approach politics is a little different than the national environment. But one thing that we've seen, we've talked about in this podcast is, you know, the wholesale almost sort of nationalization of attitudes in Texas, whereby I mean, you know, democratic disdain for any Republican elected official in Texas is as high as it was, you know, basically for Donald Trump at the national level. Right. And so at this point, you know, one of the things is kind of, you know, clear when you look at this, to me at least, is, is that, you know, at this point going forward, you know, you don't, there's no reason to expect, you know, I would say, Greg Abbott or any statewide Republican to be trying to run a serious, you know, persuasion election going out and trying to get Democrats and even Democratic leaning independents to vote for Republican candidates. So long as the Democrats have a serious candidate, which I just need to put that out there. Right. Which, you know, as of press time, still pending, still pending. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, you know, you know, and something else, you know, in terms of thinking about what the actors in the system, like the governor and, you know, other, you know, really anybody who's going to get involved in the electoral game, but but certainly thinking for a moment at the statewide level and at the macro level, you know, something that occurred to me is as Ross and I were kicking this around, you know, in public yesterday at the Headliners Club. Ross Ramsey of the Texas Tribune. Yes, Ross, yes, Mr. Ross Ramsey of the Texas Tribune, whose final day as interim editor-in-chief was this week. Hmm. So uh, a welcome to Sewell Chan, the new editor-in-chief. 
I don't know what the title is. I think it's editor in chief and something else, but who's now, you know, basically, you know, running the show at the Texas Tribune at the operational and strategy level. So welcome, Sewell. If you hear it, if you hear this, tell him I said, tell him we said hi. <laughs> but I, but I think that one of the things that kind of occurred to me is that you know for all this time that we talked about Texas being more competitive and particularly the whole you know again the demographics is destiny which has almost become not quite a punchline but kind of close um, <laughs> you know certainly seemed that way in 2020 but that redistricting as really gives us almost a better gauge of that than anything mm-hmm. else because. If you look back to the way that lines were drawn in 2011, and we've gone over this in detail on the podcast, I don't want to beat it to death, but you know the extent to which the the, the Democrat or Republicans were able to draw themselves what they thought were 95 seats, at one point or another, that actually became at one point later on that actually became 102 seats. Right. And now this time, the benchmark seems to be that Democrats have drawn themselves. 85 seats. Now, there's a bunch of caveats to this argument, but that in itself is actually a more realistic assessment of the degree to which demographics are destiny than most of the other things that we look at, you know, like, you know, the projection of the ethnic breakdown of the of the population, which in itself is subject, you know, when you say demographics are destiny based on the growth of the Latino population, I think we're finding that in a lot of a lot of those cases there were some, shall we say, unexamined assumptions about the partisan behavior identification and voting behavior of Latinos baked into that. Mm-hmm. But the degree to which Republicans felt like they could draw X number of really strongly advantaged majority districts, even allowing for the degree of ambition, which had been kind of what we one of the ways I'd been talking about it a lot was, you know, the kind of they swung for the fences in 2011. Will they do so again? And I'm still not sure exactly what the answer is. Um, I think they probably and and from talking to a few people around at least closest to the process, it does seem like they were a bit more on defense this time. Yeah. But not so much that this isn't kind of a this doesn't underline the degree to which you know the de- the changing demographics of the state both ethnically and more importantly as we've talked about a lot geographically mm-hmm. are a natural constraint on this. But it's also a more realistic view I think of just you know what the democratic advantages are and how how potent they are. Yeah, I mean, if demographics I love, were destiny, I don't think you could draw eighty-five Republican seats, even if you're a great gerrymandering. And I know, you know, the response to this: well, that's because they're gerrymandering, and they could have drawn yeah, them. They're packing and, and cracking and all that right. kind of is. And the, but the thing is, I mean, you know, if you go and you turn the seats into percentages, you know, percentage right. of the seats, and then you start to look at you know the percentage of the seats as a comparison to sort of the percentage statewide vote distribution. Yeah. Yeah, again, I'm not saying like what is a big number or what is a small number. Right. But you're talking about deviations of like, oh, this is like maybe like six percent off. Right. Yeah. Which and again, it, it's it, it, it translates into a large number of seats, and obviously right. at the end of the day, it translates into completely different policy directions. So it's not to say it's not inconsequential, but you're right. And I mean, I, I mean, I would add in just sort of as a question or a prop yeah. for you on that. I mean, I wonder. I've been wondering also how much of that had to do with the fact that in the in the last round of redistricting, Republicans had so many more mouths to feed and that they were starting with such a larger majority. It's not like yeah. they could have said, well, you know, we've got 90 some odd seats. Let's just make sure we have 89 real safe ones. And the rest yeah. of you guys see you later. Now, they did that a little bit, obviously, in fun ways, which are fun right. to watch. 
But, you know, yeah. in some ways, well, on, a, some on ways, a day in which Kyle Biederman has announced that he's not running for reelection in his previous district. We'll right. just throw that in as a possible illustration or someone who maybe voted against the speaker. Right. You know, just for example. But but I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, I think both things can be true, which is that one, you know, they, they did have fewer mouths to feed. They weren't trying to create, you know, significantly more districts, at least in the House, because one, but also because they probably couldn't have. Yeah. is the other piece here right and that's right. And that's the and that's what's interesting i think about all this you get to the end of this and we we're at this thirty thousand foot view and you get to sort of say well take it you know take it in some total when you look at the actions of the actors in the process what does that tell us about what they think about what's going on right and 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 it's an interesting you know and i and i don't you know i don't you know this is a half-baked thing for sure but this i don't the half-baked podcast and i don't suspect and i and i don't put it forward as a you know as a measure per se but I think it's a, you know, it's an interesting heat check, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's a better heat check than what either one of the parties are telling you, you know, yeah. certainly the Democrats, to be honest. But mm-hmm. so I think, in the, you know, we've, you know, we're at about a half hour, but I, you know, I think I do want to end on sort of the, the politics yeah. of this. And, and Bob Garrett had a piece in the Dallas Morning News, which is, I, I you know, I like Bob's perspective. Uh, yeah. uh, he's been around for a long time. He's the you know he's the the right mix of the of the familiar and with a little distance, but also a, a crotchetiness to his view of these things um, that I well that I, I appreciate even you know uh, I appreciate period um, you know but and, and I, I kind of don't like the winners and losers template very much and he did a kind of who won uh-huh. and who lost column on yeah. uh, uh, store story on the legislature in the last couple of days on the Dallas Morning News but I think it is a, a you know, it's been interesting to watch the relationship, as always, between the big three this time, that is, between the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker of the House, um, and to see, you know, how unstable and still unresolved that all those relationships are, and how much of that, I think, is still really coursing below the surface in most of this. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, Exhibit A and that was really in the last couple of weeks of the third session as... You know, the governor seemed to be very responsive to, you know, some combination that's not entirely clear of input from, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump, Dan Patrick, the far right, you know, as some of his, you know, detractors on Twitter on the left and the right have said, Don Huffines. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the, you know, the real tension that is revealed yet again between the governor and the lieutenant governor and and the degree to which the speaker has really been a first-term speaker in a very difficult session trying to find his footing. Yeah. I mean, the way that, that, that Bob put it, I thought was, you know, again, I agree with you. This sort of winner-losers thing. It's, it's a loser. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say there's one that I – I mean, there's one that I like that we come back to. Which, I mean, the, the continuity and change frame, I kind of like in terms of thinking about this stuff a little bit more in some yeah. ways. But, but yeah, I mean, it's hard not to look at this and sort of, you know, say, okay. But, but if you think like, okay, who won, who lost, or who's strong, or who's weak, or that kind of thing, it's kind of hard not to come out of this and think, you know, Patrick's – you know, I would say looks stronger than ever in some ways. I mean, I think, you know, after sort of some various kind of very, you know, I would say various attempts to exert his will on the Senate. And then I would say also on the process overall, I would right. say this seemed like the session in which he kind of really hit his stride on most of those things that he was at least were important to him. I mean, there were some, you know, some weird hiccups here and there, but that's to be expected with 10 months of legislating and, you know, yeah. dealing with every single issue on the docket. You know, Abbott, on the other hand, I would say it's sort of, it's sort of weird. I'm sort of like, he sort of seems to be, and this is, you know, weak but powerful, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
you know, I mean, he certainly has the ability to influence the process, you know, in, in ways that are like, you know, in some way, I think in some cases people would say this is clearly to his advantage and to the disadvantage of those he's asking to do, you know, the bidding, but he still got it done in most cases. So, yeah, I mean, I think if, if I had one kind of probably, you know, thing that I would disagree with, with, with Bob on or with, you know, the perspective of the piece, it would, it would be, I think Abbott's relative position makes it easier to say, oh, he lost in this relative yeah, to where like... he's been in the past. But that's not really how I would read it. You know, I think that's probably a, that's much more of an inside perspective. I think in the eye, you know, I think it's, it, you know, we'll see, you know, we'll be in the, you know, we'll have new polling relatively soon. But, you know, what exactly is the criteria for Abbott having lost? I mean, the fact that he's being challenged, I think. Yeah. Well, and it's weird because it's sort of like the behavior that he's chosen to to the behaviors he's chosen to to follow, or you know, whatever the impulses he's chosen to follow, the people he's chosen, whatever. Somehow, that's supposed to display that he's lost. But the truth is, again, if we're just sitting here right now saying, "Well, handicap the twenty twenty two Texas elections," who do you think is going to win Texas governor? Thing, I think Greg Abbott's most likely to win right now right. Again, for lots of reasons. He's got you know fifty five, sixty million dollars in the bank. It's kind of hard to call him a loser. The, yeah, there's I, you know, there, you mean, know. If, if if he's if he's if he's looking like a loser and, and particularly vulnerable, he's curiously bereft of bear, of serious challenges to his position or authority in yeah. either party. You know, however much, you know. I mean, I think you you know we said this last week. I think that you know it makes sense to take Don Huffine seriously. It'd be a rookie mistake not to. Mm-hmm. You know, but I mean, I don't think anybody really expects that. Don Huffines is going to beat Greg Abbott or will even drive him, you know, I mean, the worst case scenario, driving him into a runoff, but I, even that I think is not all that likely at this point. But I, but I think the, you know, the, you know, the, the point that I, you know, I'm sort of most interested in this and you kind of, you know, you, you sort of got at this is, you know, what did, what did Greg Abbott want from this session? Right. And I think he wanted to maintain his position going into reelection for the governor's race. Uh, he wanted to not provide, you know, any more traction, you know, as much as he could, any traction for challenges from his right. And he was able and he was willing to bear short term costs to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't see any evidence that those goals were not achieved. Yeah. Now, his structural position, you know, may, you know, turn out to be, you know, there are still a lot of things that could happen. I got to I, I got to use. I got to, I got to poke Ross Ramsey yesterday at that you'll you'll appreciate with at our event yesterday with you know that there are still exogenous shocks out there that could happen and go. change the terrain. For sure. Um, but Those exogenous shocks. You know, and, and and I think you know we're going to run out of time to get to it, and maybe we'll come back to this you know in, in coming weeks. But you know, as we've said on here, I mean, I think the underlying issue of governance based on the power outages and the COVID response are potential weaknesses, but at this point, I think they're more potential than real pending events in the next year. And they're certainly not hurt. And and then, you know, the power infrastructure issue could hurt him should say, and we have another February like last February, let's put it that way. But I think, you know, the probability of that is you don't have to abandon the position that mistakes were made to say that, you know, the triggering event, the weather was an outlier. 
Yeah. I mean, when I take sort of the big picture takeaway from all of this at the, at the moment where we're kind of standing, setting aside exogenous shocks and sort of, you know, what stood out in the legislative system. I mean, the first is the volume. Let me just say this. As a set piece, I want to say, I think the 2022 elections will be about mobilization. This is not about conv- – at this point, there's no convincing Democrats that Greg Abbott should right. deserve re-election. There's no convincing Republicans to vote for Beto O'Rourke. Let's just call that a day and you know, let's see how much Republicans can turn out rural Texas, South Texas are working to increase their vote margins, how much Democrats can increase turnout in you know, urban and suburban areas to their advantage. That's, that's what this election is going to be about. So then you look at kind of three big picture takeaways. One, say – the high volume of legislation, I think that helps that helps Abbott. That helps, you know, mobilize Republican yeah. voters. There's no reason for, you know, a single, let's say a second amendment primary like a right. primarily second amendment voter to say, you know, I'm not I'm sending this one out because they didn't do what I wanted. Same thing. Yeah, with they covered they covered so, a lot of bases all the bases, really. But the other two things that are kind of sitting out there is, you know, in terms of things that surprised me from the session from Big Church, sort of, you know, the lack of any pretense about actually taking on serious issues. I mean, for the most part, not to say that they didn't try to plug some holes here and there, but I mean, even that's kind of certainly not in a public way that I think people are going to go and say, and from our own poll, you know, like, well, they definitely took care of the grid. Well, ironically, a lot of that is more, you know, I'd setting aside the grid for a second, but on other areas, you know, they sort of inoculated themselves using all that federal money. You know, if you look at what they threw money at, at the end of the session, a lot of that are things that, you know, enable them to say, no, we did something about that. Right. Well, you know, we'll, but we'll see if the, we'll see if being able to say that at the end of the session will carry through, you know, to the general. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, and overwhelm, I'd say, you know, people's experience of the last seven or eight months. Right. I'm not saying it won't. I'm just saying that's a question. Right. And then the other one I think is sort of, you know, and I think about this in terms of, you know, independent and sort of, you know, true independent voters in Texas and, you know, and, and Texas historically kind of conservative political and the, culture. And the, and the small shred of, present, of persuadable partisans that are out there. Yeah. Right. And what I do think about is, you know, the lack of any sort of ideological moorings to any of this, which you kind of highlight in terms of the whole, well, we're just going to be start, we're just going to start spending billions of dollars yeah. on border security, <laughs> you know? Well, you know, what's ironic about that, I think, is that what that underlines is how detached that ideological that ideologically driven agenda was mm-hmm. from actual governance yeah <laughs> you know yeah and that and, and i think that's a, and maybe that is it's a good place to arrive for today i think and i think maybe that's what's kind of hovering out there mm-hmm. you know and the way you said you know will it get over what's going on and what's happened in the last seven or eight months well we'll see when we see what the next seven or eight what the seven or eight months before the general election look like we don't yeah. even know what the you know what the question is going to be in that response <laughs> regard at this point, whether it's going to be you know I mean I think what the Abbott team is gambling on that is that it won't be the same questions that we're talking about now. Their number you know my guess is they're thinking their numbers will recover. They'll change the subject in terms of this agenda split and barring again that's why we keep talking about some big external event. Barring that, then they'll be they should be fine. Well, and the biggest you know and I think most that's the theory of the case. Well, and the, and the most biggest, I think the biggest predictable. I think you should go ex- with most biggest. Most biggest predictable, yeah. <laughs> uh, external event is just you know another surge of migrants at the border, which is something that plays into the hands of what right. they're already doing. It, it's actually it's a weak spot for Biden. It's a weak spot for Biden among Democrats and among yeah. independents. And so that's why you know I sort of I've been I think it's more you know the pivot is not to like some moderate position that's going to appeal to like you know some set of independents and maybe moderate Democrats because that's just not happening at this point. The appeal is to you know to, for you know mo- for basically or the mo- or the pivot to the middle is 
pivot back to something that unifies all Republicans, even right. the 30, you know, 20, 30% Republicans who have reticence about a lot of these policy areas. They're not the right. same Republicans, but they're out there on the one hand. And, you know, I think a fair number of independents and even, you know, maybe even some Democrats, you know, I don't sure. think you're going to vote for, 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 you know, for Abbott, but, you know, maybe kind of yeah. generally turned off by, you know, the immigration situation. And can, yeah, I can blunt the, you know, and, and, you know, look, Biden's, Biden's approval numbers on immigration and border security have not been no. very strong. And and in that kind of scenario, you know, I don't think we can expect them to get any stronger. So, I think with that, uh, thanks for being here, Josh. Uh, thanks to the the folks in the audio studio here in the Liberal Arts Development Studio for having me back in the house. Nice to be back. Thanks to you for listening. Uh, data uh, and all kinds of other goodies that some of which are re- referred to in the podcast, some of which are not at TexasPolitics.UTexas. .edu, and you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter, pretty weekly anyway, uh, that highlights data relevant to recent events in Texas and American politics. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.